With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, April 19th. Unfortunately, I have to once again begin today's show with an apology. I am so sorry for the lack of episodes on this feed over the past few days. Now, it wasn't because we were taking a vacation here at Cracked Rackets. We had our final SEC cross-court cast of the 2022 college tennis regular season on Friday, our penultimate Big Ten cross-court cast on Sunday. We were also hosting a USTA Level 3 event, and to be honest, that Level 3 event was the most time-consuming of the bunch and likely the reason we did not have podcasts over the past few days. Now, of course, here at Cracked Rackets, we are so fortunate to be able to host events like a Level 3 USTA event to bring in some of the best boys and girls 18 players in the country to compete for the right for a title compete to get some matches under their belts as they try to figure out their futures best position themselves for potentially playing college tennis. And again, just to measure yourselves against your peers and opportunity, I think all of us enjoy in whatever media it may take. It's an all-consuming process, though, when you host an event like that. And here this past weekend in Indianapolis on Monday, April 18th, which was the final day of the event, we had snow in the forecast. Yes, that's right. We had snow in the Midwest over the course of the past few days. It was an outdoor event, or at least was supposed to be. When you have snow on the ground, you got to move indoors. And when you move indoors, there are, of course, delays. Those delays meant the tournament finished later than anticipated as such. No podcast for all of you listeners over the past few days. Again, I do apologize for that fact. I do plan on playing catch up here, providing additional content beyond what we usually do here week in, week out to make up again for the lack of episodes to play catch up and of course to preview what promises to be another exciting week across levels in the tennis world and obviously we're coming off of a weekend that had our first Masters 1000 on clay on the ATP tour Stefano Tsitsipas making it back-to-back titles in Monte Carlo survives a three-set thriller against Diego Schwartzman in the quarterfinals a decisive straight set victory another one for him against Sasha Zvira and then in the final, he takes care of business, knocking off Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. I want to talk about what allows Stefano Tsitsipas to thrive the moment the calendar turns to the clay court season. And we saw it last season. We've seen it carry over here to the start. When Tsitsipas gets on the clay courts, he takes his game to another level. And I want to talk about what about his game thrives on the surface. I want to talk about what we should expect from Tsitsipas moving forward as well. Of course, there were some other takeaways I want to share from the action in Monte Carlo, and I've spent Monday evening here in the uh, all-day Tuesday catching up, watching as much tennis as I can. So not just Tsitsipas, but of course Alejandro Davidovich Fokino stamps his place as a threat on the clay court events, proves he belongs in that conversation of top 20, top 
top 15, maybe even at his best top 10, sort of clay court caliber players. And then the semifinalists, Zverev. There was good, there was bad. I want to discuss it here on today's show. Grigor Dimitrov, good run for him. And yet, I still think it was players like Yannick Sinner and Hoopy Hercots who with their results, perhaps most more notable and more consequential uh, to the game moving forward. So I want to offer my final reflections from all the action in Monte Carlo. Of course, I have to preview the week ahead as well as the action never ceases across levels in the tennis world. We've got the action in Stuttgart picking up on the WTA side. Anytime you've got a 1,000-level event, a 500-level event nowadays on the WTA Tour, the draws are always loaded. Stuttgart is no exception. So many fun potential matchups to discuss here on today's show. And, you know, there are two WTA events. There are also two ATP events, one in Belgrade. You've got the 500-level event happening in Barcelona, where Monte Carlo champion Stefano Tsitsipas is slated to play, as are so many others. I want to preview again all of this week's tour-level action here on today's show. Offer the reflections from Monte Carlo as well, of course. If you're looking for coverage of the ATP Challenger Tour, tune on over to our Great Shot podcast feed. Damian Kuss, Jakob Bobro, our favorite Cracked Rackets contributors, break it all down as they do each and every week, of course. We'll cover all the happenings on the college level on Tuesday and Thursday on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. We talk about the women Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern time. We talk about the men Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, be on the lookout for some more cracked interviews this week as we get that podcast rocking and rolling once again as postseason play uh, almost underway on the college level. Of course, pros competing everywhere across the globe. We've got North American challengers, plenty of people for us to talk to. And then, you know, of course, we also pride ourselves on some junior coverage as well. And I spoke with the GOAT of juniors coverage, Colette Lewis, last week on the Mini Break podcast. So if you're looking for conversations on the Easter Bowl, the sort of prospects you should be watching as we head towards the Junior French Open, Junior Wimbledon, Kalamazoo, San Diego. We cover all of that on a mini break episode with Colette Lewis. But of course, you want to hear about the latest happenings across levels in the tennis world. And before I can do that here on today's show, I want to remind all of you that the reason we can do that day in, day out here at Cracked Rackets is because of the support we get from all of you. I mean this sincerely to see how many of you leave reviews, leave ratings on our Apple uh, podcast app, on Spotify to see the reception on tennis Twitter and from our Crack Rackets community. It means the world to us. It gives us the energy to keep going, even when we're hosting tournaments, even when we're hosting broadcasts as well. And by the way, we wouldn't be able to do that without your continued support. So on behalf of all of us here at Crack Rackets, thank you for continuing, excuse me, to tune in. Of course, a huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well. And we're going to visit Tennis Point HQ here on Wednesday. We will be in Cincinnati recording a live podcast on video with our guy, at Tennis Point, Nate Walworth. We'll get to talk to Dave Limke. We'll get to talk to Colleen, the entire Tennis Point team, talk about what's happening there, the latest and greatest products. So be on the lookout for that podcast to drop over the next few days. Be on the lookout for video content to drop from that experience on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel as well. And of course, to any of you who have to go compete out there or want to get back on the tennis court yourselves, if you need to equip yourself with the latest and greatest, you can do so at the best prices by going to our friends at Tennis Point. 
Dashpoint and go into tennisdashpoint.com today. Of course, while you're there, use our promo code CR15 at checkout. Not only will you get an additional 15% on all sale items, you'll get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. We are so grateful for the continued support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. The least we can ask you to do is support them as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, and I know that was a hot intro here, folks. That always happens when it's been a few days since I've recorded. I got to warm up myself as I get back into my podcasting rhythm. Let's talk about the action that unfolded in Monte Carlo. And we start with Stefano Tsitsipas, who goes back to back in Monte Carlo, captured the title last season, captures the title this year as well for Tsitsipas, as I uh, mentioned in the introduction. It's a three-set victory for him over Diego Schwartzman, straight sets over Sasha Zvira, then straight sets over Alejandro Davidovich Fokina to capture back-to-back Monte Carlo titles. And you look for Stefano Tsitsipas, I know to say it's his first title since May of 2021. That doesn't sound that long ago. And for him to have not won a title in over a year or in about a year, you know, context being key. Stefano Tsitsipas is a top 10, top five sort of player. He's not playing 250 events with much frequency anymore. And you feel like if he did play those events with frequency, he would probably have more titles under his belt. Now, if your argument is, well, why isn't he winning more 500-level titles? Why isn't he winning more Masters titles? I would say, you know, since winning Monte Carlo last year in uh, in April of last year, excuse me, he's made five different finals. For now, four of them have come on clay, one of them on the hard courts, that hard court final earlier this year in Rotterdam where he was knocked out by Felix. Ogier Aliassim, his only other final of the season. But, you know, he's been sniffing around the big titles, around the big finals, around the big semifinals as well. And, you know, for Stefano Tsitsipas, again, he continues to prove his prowess on the clay courts. And for Stefano Tsitsipas, you know, first of all, to win this title in Monte Carlo drops just one set on his way to the title. You look for him overall. Again, it was the success he was having dictating match in, match out, the success he was having on the first serve, and you look for him, his first serve win percentage dips under 70% just once on his way to the Monte Carlo title. And, you know, again, he wins over 50% of his second serve points in every match he plays. That's difficult enough to do on a quicker surface, let alone on a surface like clay when your opponent has that much more time to hit cleanly through the return of serve. Stefano Tsitsipas just plays such decisive front foot tennis now and his movement really isn't compromised when we get onto the clay courts. He's comfortable sliding into shots, sliding out of shots as well. He does such a good job whenever he tries to run around a backhand and, you know, particularly when he's hitting that forehand on the alley on the ad side or in the alley on the ad side of the court, the obvious response for his opponent is going to be to take the open space available, attack the Stefanos on the run forehand. And Tsitsipas's ability to hit that on the run forehand defensively on the clay, whether he's swinging through the the ball and, you know, elevating the ball, creating depth for himself defensively, whether he's returning, uh, you know, pace cross court, whether he's creating short angle for himself, whether he's even hitting an on the slide slice shot. Tsitsipas's ability to play defense on the slide on clay, he takes another level as a defender on the surface. He has that much more time, of course, to track down the ball. And, you know, because the surface slows down his opponent's approach, and he's that much more comfortable hitting the backhand on the run on the slower surface as well. And 
I think that was the critical thing for Tsitsipas as he was having success uh, here in Monte Carlo this week is how comfortable he was both swinging through that backhand. And then we saw it against Sasha Zverev, his willingness to employ the slice. I don't have the metrics in front of me. I apologize for that fact. But I would say Tsitsipas played slice at least 35, 40% maybe of the time against Zverev. How rare is that? For Tsitsipas, who is very comfortable swinging through that shot and is that much more comfortable swinging through it on the return of serve on clay courts as well. But just his ability to neutralize things because he beat Sasha Zverev 6-4, 6-2 in what was, in my opinion, his most impressive performance of the week. And certainly you look for him in that match against Diego Schwartzman. And I know I'm jumping around here. I apologize for that fact. Tsitsipas is up, you know, 6-2, on Diego Schwartzman, which is only a single break of serve, but 6-2-4-1, you feel like you're at the finish line. Now, he, you know, drops that second set. Schwartzman comes back, takes it 7-6. Schwartzman able to extend rallies, able to find the backhand, able to find short angles, get Tsitsipas in uncomfortable middle, you know, uh, no man's land, excuse me, positions of the court and just you know, was very able to absorb the first strike of Stefano Tsitsipas to get his return either to the backhand wing or just deep enough to where Tsitsipas couldn't tee off on a first forehand. And yet in the third set, it was the imposing nature of Stefano Tsitsipas's game that allowed him to prevail, that allowed him to be on his front foot, that allowed him to wear down Diego Schwartzman physically. Tsitsipas's serve plus one forehand combination, whether he's going inside in, which he loves to do when he runs around that ball and gets an ad side first forehand, going inside out with that ball to eventually set up the inside in. You know, again, the angle and the heaviness of that first forehand. It's as effective of a play, particularly on the clay courts, as you are going to find on the ATP Tour. And it's just the decisiveness with which Tsitsipas hits it. Again, you look for him in his various matches. Now, the first set against Zverev was funky because there were five breaks of serve and a 6-4 set victory for Stefano Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas got the first break. And Zverev, every time but the final time, was able to break back. That said, what was so impressive for Tsitsipas was, even when his serve was getting broken, how he kept swinging, how comfortable he was as a returner on the clay courts. And you look for Stefano Tsitsipas, you know, and I want to go all the way back to the start of the tour, you know, post-pandemic, because I think that's a reasonable stretch of time. And that is subsequently when we've seen a leap from Stefano Tsitsipas into the elite of the elite on the ATP Tour. You look for Tsitsipas, he's 92-35 and overall since play resumed in August of 2020. That's a 72% win percentage. Now you break that down by surface. Stefano Tsitsipas has been very good on hard courts, 55 and 26 overall, 68% win percentage. Obviously, he's made runs to the Australian Open semifinals twice. He's, you know, managed to make semifinals in Canada, managed to make semifinals in Cincinnati. He's, you know, managed to make finals in Acapulco as well. He's had some significant results on the hard courts. He takes things another level on the clay courts. You look for him 37 and 8 since the tour play resumed in August of 2020 on clay courts. Those eight losses, one of them to Novak Djokovic, five-set loss, Roland Garros semifinals. Another one of them, Novak Djokovic, five-set loss, Roland Garros finals. He also lost a match to Djokovic in the Rome quarterfinals. He lost to Rafa in the Barcelona final last year. Three-set losses to Rublev and Yannick Sinner. There's also the loss in Hamburg last year to Philip Krajinovic in in three sets. That's an outlier. 
I mean, lost to Kasparud in straight sets. That's the eighth loss for those curious in Madrid, six and four last year. I don't think that's a bad loss, certainly given Kasparud's track record of clay court success. The results prove it. The eye test prove it. Stefano Tsitsipas is one of the five best players, if not maybe one of the three best players on clay courts on the ATP Tour. Certainly Rafa is always in that conversation. Novak Djokovic, after what we saw him rip off and Roland Garros last year, has to be in that top five conversation. A healthy Dominic team would be one thing, but he's not healthy. He loses his first round match today to John Millman in three sets. And while it was great to see him play, and I thought he looked better, we'll get to that a little bit later. I don't think coming into this French Open, we can put uh, I, we can firmly put Dominic team in that category. Now, Kasparud's had a lot of ATP 250 success, but we're still waiting for that breakthrough Masters 1000 event. We're still waiting for a big breakthrough result for him at any Grand Slam, let alone the French Open. He's in the conversation, but Tsitsipas at 37-8 and eight with two Masters finals with a French Open final and semifinal under his belt has the more definitive and the better resume. At this point, then Casper. Now, if you want to throw Carlos Alcaraz into the equation, I will knock you only for the fact that we haven't seen him prove it. You know, we saw him do it at the 500 level. We saw him do it repeatedly at the challenger level. He's going to be outstanding at the clay court level. He just won a Miami Open title. I know he lost early in Monte Carlo. I have no doubts about Carlos Alcaraz, but given the resume, you cannot definitively put him over Stefano Tsitsipas at this point. I think if Novak Djokovic is able to play and prove he is healthy and fit, which he was not 100%, certainly from a fitness perspective, in his loss to Davidovich Fokina, which was a three-set loss that certainly aged well, by the way, with Davidovich Fokina making the final. If you're making a short list right now of French Open contenders, and this is not a hot take given he was last year's finalist, Nadal's going to be number one. Fine, fair, no qualms. I think Tsitsipas has a very strong case to be number two. I wouldn't knock you if you have some uncertainty about Rafa coming off of injury. You even want to put Tsitsipas one right now. I won't call you crazy. I think he belongs in that number two spot. And again, you look at the splits for him. I mentioned 55 and 26. That's 68% win percentage on hard courts. 37 and 8 on clay. That's an 82% win percentage. You look at his hold percentage, 87.9%, which would rank sixth amongst all players on the ATP Tour in totality, uh, or excuse me, on hard courts specifically, his 85.7% hold percentage on clay courts, that ranks fourth amongst all ATP Tour players. So he goes from very good to really, really very good uh, from hard courts to clay. You look at the break percentage, that's the biggest difference. 21.1% for him on hard courts since the tour play resumed in August 2020. That's a, you know, number good for about, you know, anywhere between 35th and 27th. Now, if you this goes back to August 2020. If you narrow that down to the start of last season, he moves a little bit higher up the, you know, the break percentage is up to about 22.2%. On clay courts, his break percentage, 30.1%. Now, while that would rank outstanding across surfaces, that number is good for 18th on clay courts over the course of the past 52 weeks. Not elite, but if Stefano Tsitsipas is going to be an elite server on the clay, and he's going to be better than average as a returner on the clay as well, well, with the weapons he possesses, the math suggests it, the eye test suggests it, the results suggest it, he has all of the components, the ingredients needed to be that good, to compete for Masters 1000 titles, to justifiably be the second favorite entering the 2022 French Open. And I think his results and his play in Monte Carlo uh, dictated that fact. I mean, again, 
he dominated Alex Vera 4 and 2 in the final and yeah they traded breaks in that first set but anytime the indecisiveness anytime the passivity emerged for Zverev Tsitsipas capitalized, whether it was, again, finding forehands when, when he was able to lull Zverev to sleep with his backhand slice, whether it was displaying the physicality needed to absorb the, the first strike of Alex Zverev, get things back to neutral. And when you're able to get things back to neutral with Zverev and, you know, not just give him an easy attackable ball on the first serve, Zverev continues to get passive in the biggest moments of the set. Go watch his 4-5 service game in that first set against Tsitsipas. He has the opportunity to play plus one balls I believe on three of the five uh, three of the yeah five points and you know on two of them Tsitsipas is able to absorb the first blow down one of them he wasn't but on two of them he were he was and he was able to win both of those points because he went from defense to neutral and then eventually Zverev coughed up a short ball or coughed up an unforced error and Tsitsipas was able to capture the point and it's on these clay courts that his backhand becomes a little bit less attackable But his fitness sustains, I mean, again, how heavy that forehand is, the weight behind that shot, the drop shots, his willingness to serve and volley and move forward when you give him space, which, of course, it's that much more difficult as a defender to recover and track down a second passing shot, let alone a third passing shot against Stefano Tsitsipas uh, when you are on the run. It's the offense Stefano Tsitsipas plays. It's so impressive on this surface. And again, you look for him over the past, you know, since August 2020, 37-8. The results speak for themselves. Stefano Tsitsipas reminds everyone, and especially just given the poor start he had to his season. And I know, again, there's a Rotterdam final. There's an Australian Open semifinal on his resume. But you look for Stefano Tsitsipas, for him to go through that sunshine swing and in, at Indian Wells and, you know, lose another match to Jensen Brooksby in three sets in the round of 32, to lose not necessarily another match to Brooksby, but to lose to another guy younger than him, another up-and-comer, and then to lose another match to Carlos Alcaraz after losing to him in the U.S. Open, to lose to him in Miami in the fashion that he did 5-3, and three, where Tsitsipas played so well and was up a break through the first 20 minutes of the match, and then Alcaraz just found another level, another gear that Tsitsipas wasn't able to hit and to be outplayed in the sunshine stretch the way that he was, he had to have been disappointed coming off of that. But this was a stark reminder to the rest of the tour that now we're back on the clay court season. And on this surface, with how well he returns serve, the improved variety, the continuing improvements of his phys- on his, uh, with his physicality, he is one of the guys. He is one of the top contenders. I haven't talked about his match against Alejandro Davidovich Vokina. Davidovich Vokina comes out, you know, trying to be you know, assertive, trying to be aggressive, absorbing the first blow and trying to do some dictating of his own against Tsitsipas. But it wasn't, you know, Davidovich Fokina wasn't able to sustain that level. It was just so difficult for Davidovich Fokina to find any opportunities to attack because Davidovich Fokina is a guy who likes to play with his food, right? He'll throw in the slice. He'll throw in a short ball for you to have an opportunity to attack on. And Tsitsipas capitalized on all of those opportunities. You look for Tsitsipas in the match against Davidovich Fokina, 21 winners against 11 unforced airs. And, you know, again, makes uh, 74% of his first serves wins. 
71% of those points. He only had to hit 16 second serves throughout the course of the match. He won half of those points. Now, he was broken on three of four breakpoint chances, but it was Tsitsipas who was leading throughout the duration of the first set. And it was Tsitsipas who really, you could feel, have the momentum. And it just felt like, yeah, Davidovich Fokino found some breaks of serve, but he had to play such miraculous tennis just to find those breaks. It felt like a matter of when, not if, Tsitsipas was going to get that definitive break, take a scoreboard lead in the second set, and ultimately close out the match against Davidovich Fokina. Now, again, to Davidovich Fokina's credit, the athleticism he shows, the fluidity in the outer thirds of the court, his ability to turn defense into offense, how simple he keeps things on the backhand wing. His backhand is literally just takes his hands, puts the racket behind his waist, and absorbs whatever you get him, uses his contact point, uses his strength to redirect your shot and guide the ball so well. He was so effective throughout the course of his run to the final here in Monte Carlo. And I suppose that's where we'll pivot now against Tsitsipas, a winner in the final. And I suppose just the final bow for Stefano Tsitsipas, back-to-back titles for him in Monte Carlo, first title for him since Lyon. I believe he is the first player uh, since, I want to say, 2003, I believe it was Juan Carlos Ferrero, to back up and go back-to-back at a Masters 1000 event. Uh, so again, I believe he was first, or maybe it was since 2004, 2005, but first to do it since, you know, before the big three era was truly upon us. You look for Stefano Tsitsipas now at the Masters event since the tour resumed play in August 2020. Again, 31-12 and overall in Masters events. It includes the two Monte Carlo titles. It also includes semifinals runs for him in Cincinnati twice, in Canada once. I mean, again, outside of Paris, where he's had first-round losses in 2020, in 2021 as well, he's been good just about everywhere. I, I if uh, Again, the record is ridiculous. It speaks for himself. He's a top five guy on the clay courts. He's a top 10 guy unequivocally, a top five guy right now, one of the elite of the elites on the ATP tour. But Davidovich Fokina proved his worthiness once again on the clay courts. And I know I mentioned this stats a couple of times throughout last week's coverage of the event in Monte Carlo. Davidovich Fokina is now 25 and 11 since tour play resumed on clay courts. Again, 25 and 11 overall since August of 2020 on clay courts. That includes a run to last year's French Open quarterfinal where he knocked out Kasparud in five sets, where he knocked out, you know, the always tricky Federico Del Bonis, the lefty, such a difficult out on the clay court. He's also now made runs to the Monte Carlo quarterfinal or better twice. Last season, he was knocked out by the champion, Stefano Tsitsipas, in a, uh, in a match where he was forced to unfortunately retire with an injury after a very close 7-5 first set. And, you know, for Davidovich Fokina, who this this week knocks out Novak Djokovic in three sets and he's up a set and a break sees that lead evaporates is able to mentally recover you know make that third set so physical takes it 6-1 over the world number one he then knocks off Taylor Fritz from a set down in the quarterfinals knocks out Grigor Dimitrov after again blowing a significant lead in the second set takes that 6-3 in the third he very nearly took that second set against Stefano Tsitsipas, almost had another comeback in hand. And that's because Davidovich Fokina's combination of athleticism, explosion, creativity, and just overwhelmingness. I don't know what other adjective to use. There's a presence. There's a vibe to him. He's a big match player. He just seems to, and again, I think that at times get the gets the best of him. The comparison I would make is perhaps a, a Francis Tiafo. that 
ability, to, and, and honestly, to an extent, to Carlos Alcaraz, certainly Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer and Rafa, all three of them do this better than perhaps anyone else. But in the biggest moments, in the biggest stages, Davidovich Fokina is just going to be there. He's going to extend rallies. He's going to get his backhand on that ball, going to make that extra shot, going to, on the run, come up with some six, you know, spectacular display of athleticism, whether he's slapping a ball down the line, you know, by you with extraordinarily extraordinary pace and depth that you just don't expect someone to be able to do on the slide on a clay court, whether it's on the backhand wing, again, tracking down that ball you hit deep on the ad side corner, his ability to just, you know, get his hands on that ball and then generate enough depth and enough pace to make you uncomfortable or get you back to neutral as his opponent. All these little things Davidovich Fokina is able to do extraordinarily well. And then when he's on his front foot, he's going to hit the drop shot. He's going to hit the on-the-rise approach shot. He's going to move forward and, you know, where I think he is a good volleyer with a, you know, good, if not borderline great, you know, feel at the net. The problem for him is he sometimes lets that get uh, the better of him because of the broad spectrum of things he can do. And again, of the young players, I think of the players like the Francis Tiafos of the world, the Tommy Pauls of the world who have this broad skill set, can do plans B, C, and D so effectively. What is plan A for Alejandro Davidovich Fokina? Because certainly, again, his physicality, his abilities on the return of serve, and you look for Davidovich Fokina, who now over the last 52 weeks as a returner, an extraordinary uh, percentage for him. Davidovich Fokina now over the last 52 weeks ranking seventh in break percentage amongst top 50 players, breaking serve 30, uh, excuse me, 28.1% of the time across surfaces. You speci- uh, specify that out for clay courts, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina all the way up to fourth. In break percentage, Davidovich Fokina breaking serve 34.6% of the time on clay courts. I think we see that all, we all see that manifest itself in his performance. He puts a ton of returns in play because he does have condensed backswings, because he does have, you know, that explosive first step that allows him to get a racket on the ball once he's able to read what direction the serve is going. The physicality Davidovich Fokina displays, which is amplified that much more, of course, on a surface like clay, it's just undeniable on this surface. And again, you look for his numbers, 29 and 29 since August 2020 in ATP level hardcourt matches, 25 and 11 on clay courts. His hold percentage actually gets better on clay courts. Now, it's still only 75.1%, which is, you know, 39th amongst top 50 players on the ATP tour. But again, that subsequent 5% jump in break percentage. He remains very good, if not elite, as a returner on the clay courts. I think his athleticism, his fluidity as a mover is amplified that much more on this surface because he may actually gain a step while so many on the tour lose a step or at best remain neutral when switching from the solid concrete, the I, I was going to say the solidified concrete, the stability of concrete and hard courts when compared to the clay court surface underneath their feet. And again, for Davidovich Fokina in his three-set victory over Taylor Fritz because of that athleticism, because of that fluidity, Fritz, who in that first set landed a bunch of first serves and was just able to play plus one tennis and dictate and hit to the corners, and he was always inside the baseline imposing his will. Davidovich Fokina just wasn't able to do that much. But then Davidovich Fokina, 
you know, found a read on Taylor Fritz's serve and was able to get his return of serve deeper, was able to absorb plus one blows and get the point back to neutral. Then when he got the point back to neutral, did such a good job of using his creativity. And rather than blasting through Fritz with pace and depth through the center of the court, opened up the court with angles and got Fritz stretched into the outer thirds and forced him to have to change directions on clay courts, which as much of a stride as he made as a mover, he is still just not that much comfortable doing on the dirt. It was fantastic to see the tactical adjustments employed by Davidovich Fokina as he worked his way into that match and ultimately earned the victory. And then against Grigor Dimitrov, it was just patience again manifesting itself in attacking opportunities in different fashions. Davidovich Fokina against both Tsitsipas in the second set and throughout his match against Grigor Dimitrov, he was not afraid to attack their forehand corners, not afraid to go down the line with his backhand, to run around his backhand, go inside in with his forehand as well. If Dimitrov and Tsitsipas were going to cheat over on the ad side of the court, Davidovich Fokina was going to take the space offered for him and make the bet that, again, he was going to be the hit the ball deep enough and big enough, and he was quick enough covering the open space that he leaves open by going inside in on the forehand corner. Uh, He made that calculation repeatedly throughout the course of the match, and ultimately that calculation paid dividends. And again, Davidovich Fokina now 25-11 on clay court since tour play resumed in August of 2020. You look for him against opponents ranked outside the top 20. He's 20-5 with his losses to guys like Federico Coria, Alberto Ramos Vinoles, who, of course, clay court specialist, dare you say. And then, you know, a guy like Ilya Avashka, who has been just one of the rising stars on the ATP Tour over the past 52 weeks and was particularly hot during the clay court season last year. With context being key, there's a lot of good success, 20-5 and five overall against opponents ranked outside the top 20, and then 5-6 and six against top 20 opponents with wins over a Casper Ruud, over a Berrettini, over a Fritz now. He's playing as, you know, just about as well as anyone, and you know certainly from a mental standpoint, to beat Novak Djokovic at a Masters 1000 event, what that does for a player's confidence. Alejandro Davidovich is now up to a new career high ranking number 27. And again, he still has French Open points to defend from last year, but he one-ups his quarterfinal points from Monte Carlo, which is a lot of pressure for him to defend because again, despite the 25 and 11 success on clay courts, he's 29 and 29 on hard courts. If he didn't have a successful clay court season, there's a chance that Vidovich Fokina falls out the, outside of the top 50, falls outside of the top 75 of the ATP rankings. He one-ups his Monte Carlo quarterfinal performance from last year, making his first Masters 1000 final. Again, impressive victories over Dimitrov, who was moving extraordinarily well, playing so confidently. And then Davidovich Fokina just matched his physicality and, you know, was patient enough to withstand whatever Grigor was trying to do and beats a Taylor Fritz as well. All of that after the huge mental victory over Novak Djokovic. What a week for Davidovich Fokina. A reminder, he's in that top 20 conversation, top 15, top 10. And if you have Davidovich Fokina as your dark horse at the 2022 French Open, I will know not to take you seriously because he's not a dark horse. I think his success is prominent enough now that we can say he's in the mix. Not a contender, but he'll be in the mix. Not a contender to win the title, I should say, but he'll be in the mix to just be around that second week and be around that quarterfinal stage once again. I mean, hell, he did it last year. 
Why can't he do it once more? Given the struggles on the hard courts, what a fantastic boost to Alejandro Davidovich Fokina to begin his clay court season. Again, one of the biggest winners, certainly in Monte Carlo. He ultimately reaches the final before getting knocked off by Stefano Tsitsipas, who just, in the end, had a little bit more juice in the tank. But with that said, some final thoughts from the rest of Monte Carlo weekend. Again, we broke it all down throughout the week on last week's mini break podcast. So just some final thoughts from the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. Then we'll get to previewing the week ahead. I mean, for Sasha Zverev, look, always worth mentioning, faces significant allegations of serious abuse uh, to uh, Alia Sharapova, his former girlfriend, which you can read the allegations laid out by Ben Rothenberg in both Racket Magazine, Slate.com. He's a top 10 player. He's reaching the quarterfinals, semifinals of a Masters 1000 event. We have to talk about his level of play, have to talk about his factor if we're going to try to honestly cover the action that's unfolding before us on tour. Of course, I do think it's always important to preface any coverage with that information that Ben brought to light, but you look for Alex Zverev on the court, the same issues continue to plague him. And again, it was different when he was 18. It's different when he's 20. 21 years old. Now you look for Sasha Zverev, who's going to turn, what, 25, I believe, here this season, if he hasn't already, and it's it's the predictability. You know if it's 4-all in the third set or 5-4 in the first set or just a pressure-packed moment with him serving for it or a second serve coming up, he's going to get tentative. He's just more comfortable being six feet behind the baseline. Now, it's also undeniable that he has developed better weapons on the court. He's top 10 in hold percentage, top 15 in hold uh, in both hold and break percentage. One of, you know, the five guys you can say that about. He's consistently flirting at the top of the numbers charts, whether it's aces and just everything you're looking for as a server. Uh, because when his first serve lands, the attacking tennis he's able to play. I mean, you saw it early in the week for Zero was just blitzing through opponents on his way to the quarterfinals and, you know, ultimately was able to land enough first serves to create easy opportunities for himself to attack. And he's gotten much better as a volleyer than he was early in his career, where he would kind of wander forward towards the net aimlessly. And it's never that he was bad at hitting volleys, but had no idea where to go, no idea what to do with his first volley. He's just gotten a lot better at playing first strike tennis, at using the massive you know, first serve with the heaviness and hitting his different spots. And, you know, yeah, opponents get that ball back in play, but it's sitting inside the service box, opening up easy approach shots for him. And whether it's on the backhand wing where he can go cross court down the line with pace, you know, on the forehand wing, the heaviness of that shot when he has time to really set his feet, get into his backswing, swing through it. There's no denying Sasha Zverev has gotten better at playing front foot tennis, that his skill set continues to improve, that, again, physically he is capable of being six feet behind the baseline, playing defense and wearing you down physically as he did down the home stretch of that third set and in the third set breaker in particular where he was just, he outgrinded Yannick Sinner, put enough balls into the court to draw enough errors from the young Italian to ultimately come out on top in that match. And of course, on a clay court when it's that much more difficult to be the aggressor because if you take your swing and you miss, you just leave so many opportunities or you leave yourself so vulnerable on the clay courts because of how difficult it is to recover, the physicality Zverev uh, 
can play with match in, match out, it puts a ton of pressures on opponents to be the aggressor, to feel like you have opportunities to attack. That said, against the best of the best, if you give them those opportunities to attack, they will capitalize. And that's precisely what Yannick Sinner did. Down a break 5-4 in the first set in their quarterfinal. Sinner capitalizes on some zero passivity, whether it be a couple of second serves that floated, that gave Sinner the chance to take big rips uh, with his return of serve, just take decisive control early in the point, whether it was his ability to then win rallies where a neutral be the one deciding, okay, I'm going down the line now. Okay, I'm running around this ball using my forehand as a weapon to just overwhelm you from behind the baseline. And if you're going to sit six feet behind the baseline, I'm going to sneak forward. You know, Sinner did that extraordinarily well to take that first set and when Zverev was up a break in the third as well to get that break back and to force a third set breaker. But ultimately, the physicality of Zverev won out. But then that passivity plagued him against Tsitsipas, who is good enough to take advantage of any short ball you leave, any passivity you play with. And it just wasn't easy enough to, for Zverev to hurt Tsitsipas routinely, whether it be with the serve, where Tsitsipas knew the serve was going to the backhand, prepped himself accordingly, was able to get a clean enough rip on the ball that Zverev didn't have easy plus one opportunities or simple first volleys for him to execute into the open court. And then, you know, again, when Zverev did have his opportunities to attack, he he was passive, he was predictable, and Tsitsipas made him pay. And then, you know, when Tsitsipas was able to play front foot tennis, there was a decisiveness that Zverev lacked. And we saw that manifest itself in the third set, uh, fifth set, excuse me, in their French Open semifinal last year. Now for Stefano Tsitsipas, he's won, what, five consecutively, I believe, against Sasha Zverev? Tsitsipas is owning that relationship because he knows in the biggest moments he's going to have opportunities to attack, and he is not afraid to try to capitalize on those moments. Not six in a row, excuse me. Zverev beat him in Cincinnati last year, but uh, excuse me, five out of the last six going to Stefano Tsitsipas in this rivalry. I mean, again, Tsitsipas is perfect is the perfect player to capitalize on that Zverev passivity. And while Zverev was able to knock off Yannick Sinner because he was the more physical player down the home stretch. You know, Zverev is not 22, 23, 24, let alone 25, 26 yet in his physical prime. Now, I do think the good news, if you're going to say glass half full for Sasha Zverev, how good these young guys are and how aggressive they're willing to be in the biggest moments, the Alcarazes in the world, the Sinners of the world, obviously the Tsitsipas and Medvedevs, his contemporaries, if he does not force himself to continue to be more aggressive in those bigger moments, whether it be flexing out by going bigger on the second serve, just continuing to force himself to attack until he's finally perhaps comfortable with it in the biggest stages, gets through the serving yips, whether it's a 30-40, you know if it's 5-4, 30-40, he misses the first serve, there's a 60% chance Alex Virov is going to double fault. Those issues continue to persist, and until they go away... There are too many good young guys now, whether it's obviously the best of the best in Medvedev, you know, Tsitsipas, Sinner, and Elkaraz, who are as good as him now, who will either match his physicalities or have weapons to hurt him with. They're too good. He's not going to beat them in the biggest stages if this passivity persists. That said, because of the physicality he brings, because of the continued advancements of a we're always world-class weaponry uh, from the baseline as a server, I mean, Sasha Zverev is in the mix. There's no denying that after this result. And again, he's another guy who's disappointed here at the start of the season by this. His standards doesn't make a final against Daniil Medvedev, you know, loses to Shapo at the Australian Open and, you know, loses in the final to Sasha Bublik. You know, what? obviously, uh, 
what happens in Acapulco and being suspended or you know being put on probation even though much many in the tennis world myself included believe you should be suspended for an offense like that to strike your racket against a chair or that close to a chair umpire on the chair in that violent of a fashion particularly with the allegations you face off the court it's just unacceptable and you know again with all of that hanging over Sasha Zverev if he can't figure out the passivity you know again he will be surpassed by these young guys who are just two, who have two complete of games and are getting closer and closer to matching his world class physicality. And once they have that, then it just becomes who's mo- most decisive in the biggest moments. And time after time, for Sasha Zverev in those biggest moments, the indecisiveness continued to emerge. Now, again, the entire skill set is there. There is nothing on a tennis court Sasha Zverev can't do. Can he do all of those things, though, when there is pressure put on his shoulders? That's the question every tennis player faces, himself included, as we head through the rest of this clay court swing. I know Sinner lost the match in three sets. I continue to be all in on uh, Yannick Sinner. And for him to get to the quarterfinals, it was a brutal draw for Sinner on his pathway to that part of the tournament. You look for Yannick Sinner last week, who, you know, again, reaches another quarterfinal at a Masters 1000 event. He knocks off Borna Cioric, a tough three-set match, physical three-set match where you know, he looked injured by the end of that match. And, you know, then the three-set victory for him to overcome what was a tight first set, 7-5 against Andre Rublev. Take the next two sets, one and three, where Rublev down physically, where he was two rounds prior. What an impressive performance for that. And then his straight set went over Rusevori, who, in my opinion, is just a sleeping giant, despite getting some of the worst draws week after week after week. I continue to be all in on Yannick Sinner, who was one of just, you know, 12 guys to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage, not only last season and over the last 52 weeks, but on the clay court specifically as well. And you look for him last year, you know, a big run at the French Open before he was knocked out by Rafa, but able to ultimately reach uh, the, I believe, round of 16 there after reaching the quarterfinals the year prior where he was knocked out by Rafa. And you look for him at the Australian Open quarterfinals this year. I know I mentioned this last week as well, but for Yannick Sinner, it's the quietest 19-3 and start to a season you'll ever see. And you look for him at the big tournaments outside of Miami Masters, you know, at Miami Indian Wells where he's forced to retire in both of his matches, but quarterfinals at one, round of 16 at the other, quarterfinals at the Australian Open, blitzes through lesser-ranked opponents in Indian Wells, uh, in ATP Cup, excuse me. Again, his three losses this year where he played the complete match, Tsitsipas, Hercats Zverev. If memory serves me correct, all three of those players in the top 11 of the ATP rankings. And right now, I excuse me, Herbie Hercats is 14, but he was at the ATP Tour Finals last season, and he finds himself in the Monte Carlo quarterfinals this past week, and that's his best clay court result of his career. I actually think him making the quarterfinals, despite losing to Dimitrov, is the more significant result because for Herbie Hercats, he's another guy much like Sasha Zverev, who is just the complete package. And you look for Hubi Hercats here in 2022 uh, by hold percentage. Hubi Hercats is third amongst ATP Tour players right now, holding serve 90.8% of the time this season. When you're over 90%, you're in the Isner Club. You're in the Riley Opelka Club. You are the elite of the elite of servers, and you're winning free games. You're winning free points, creating opportunities for Hubi, who not only fundamentally can put a bunch of returns in play, but now he has the opportunity to be the aggressor, slap a couple of backhands, go big on a forehand, move forward, impose his will like he likes to do. He's also got the creativity 
the slices, the angles. I think he's very fluid for his size at a, as a mover. For him to get this result, and he's still under 500 in his career in ATP Tour level matches, but for Hubi to gain some confidence here at the start of the clay court season, particularly after tough first-round losses these past two years at the French Open, a massive boost for his campaign. And you look for Hubi Hurkacz last season on the clay. Uh, again, he won You know, between last year Madrid and Halle. He lost five consecutive matches. Milman first round Madrid, Musetti first round Rome, Botic first round Roland Garros, Stricker first round Stuttgart, FAA first round Halle. Obviously, he made the semifinals at uh, the 2021 Wimbledon. But over the next five events, we'll likely see Hubi Hercots. He has zero points to defend and a ton of confidence on his back as well. Hubie's the guy to watch with a good clay court season. Yeah, he's still got the Wimbledon semifinal to defend. And, you know, he's got uh, some significant results, a title at Met, in Mets at the end of last season, semifinals in Paris. There are some serious points to defend, but he's got nothing over the course of the clay court season. This is, you know, free picking for Hubie Hercots. Anything he can get here just lessens the burden that much more at Wimbledon. And, you know, again, I mentioned this last week, Hubie's a primetime performer. You look for him at the Masters events over the last 52 weeks. Hubie Hercots has been exceptional. He's 18-9 and at those events. He's reached the quarterfinals or better on five different occasions. Canada, Indian Wells, Paris, Indi- uh, Miami, and now Monte Carlo. Obviously, he won the title in Miami last season as well, uh, which happened before the last 52 weeks. Yeah, Hubi Hercots, he's a primetime performer. His skill set thrives, and he's a big match player as well. Him making the quarterfinals to me is the bigger development, but Grigor was locked in physically, and you look for Grigor Dimitrov, who quietly is still serving better than he has throughout the course of his career, holding serve 83.1% of the time. That's a percentage point above his career average. Now, he's only breaking serve 20.2% of the time, which not only ranks 40th amongst top 50 players, but is below his career average. And yet, with how well he was moving this week, whether it was in victories over Kasper Ruud, Basilishvili, Hoopy Hercots, the deuce, he just was comfortable, confident, playing within himself, knew he had the opportunity to take some chances on the return of serve because of how well he was serving. Again, Grigor's made a couple of quarterfinals this year at big events. He does it at Indian Wells. Now he does it here at Monte Carlo. You know, I'm, I mentioned this last week. He's a pretty similar player on the hard courts and clay courts, only wins 0.1% fewer of his total points won. And, you know, the way the cat is skinned is a little bit different. His break percentage jumps up. The hold percentage dips up bit, but if he is fit and healthy, I think regardless of surface, we know Grigor Dimitrov on the right day can beat just about anyone. He had a very good start to his week. You know, ultimately steals a set in that second set of in the uh, semifinals against Davidovich Fokina, but I thought that had more to do with Davidovich Fokina going through one of his sporadic phases where the unforced errors pile up. He started pressing a bit against Grigor, but that was a Credit to Grigor, who played with patience, who extended matches physically, was swinging through his backhand extraordinarily comfortably, sliding so well around the clay courts, moving comfortably in the surface, where obviously he lives and trains over the course of the offseason in Monte Carlo. But a very good week for Grigor Dimitrov. And again, across the board, Diego Schwartzman, for him to be down a set in 4-1 and ultimately force a third set, we know what a nightmare he is competitively on the clay courts. It was a very revealing first week of clay court action in Monte Carlo. And the reveal was the players who were good last year are still very good in Sinner's case. 
case. He's taken another step forward in Tsitsipas's case. He's consolidated his place amongst the elite of the elite as a clay quarter. And, you know, again, we knew Davidovich Fokina was dangerous. He has, uh, he has confirmed that much, 25 and 11, since August of 2020 on clay. Some trends picking up. Certainly, there are some guys we want to see bounce back, and they'll have the opportunity to do that in Barcelona this week. 500-level event, plenty of the top players in the world competing. And with that thought in mind, let's jump around and preview what's on hand this week at the tour level. Let's start on the women's side. And I know I didn't talk about Billie Jean King Cup. To be honest, I did not get the chance to watch as much of it as I would have liked. That was the event that was sacrificed with the Level 3 event with the college tennis broadcasts and what a week of upset it was. I could do 15 minutes solo about Duke beating North Carolina, about Oklahoma surviving again against Oklahoma State and Pepperdine. Pepperdine losing both matches on the Oklahoma road swing. Is it time to give up on this Pepperdine season? Do the sum of the parts not equal uh, to, to what we expected? The whole not equal to the sum of the parts, excuse me, and all of these different things. We'll cover it all on our Cracked Rackets Deciding Point episodes, which you can find on the Great Shot podcast feed. But there's a lot of good stuff happening at the tour level this week, and that starts with the WTA action in Stuttgart. And again, I know I don't have many Billie Jean King Cups thoughts for you, but I know Iga was excellent. She won what? 0-0, 1-1 in her first matchup and, you know, blitzed her way and Poland manages to advance. And that's exactly what you want to see from the number one seed coming in. And you look at her section of the draw, certainly Maria Sakkari, French Open semifinalist last year, served for the match against eventual champion Barbara Krejcikova. Sakari very quietly has worked her way all the way up to fourth in the tennis abstract yearly ELO ratings. That's a testament to how good she has been uh, here this season, really only losing two top 10 quality players. And you look for Sakari currently second, by the way, in the points race with Ashley Barty no longer part of the active race. Maria Sakari versus Iga is one of those quiet rivalries that, you know, very very likely could be a story, uh, you know, one of the definitive rivalries of the next three seasons. And Sakari's path is the more brutal one. You know, the number four seed gets a bye, but she could face off against last year's surprise French Open semifinalist in Tamara's Danzig, who has so many points to defend coming up. And look, we're in Stuttgart. It's an indoor hard court, uh, clay court. It's a little bit faster. You know, last year we saw Sabalenka hit big serves and playing so well, serving so well, so aggressively on her way to the final before, of course, best player in the world, Ashley Barty, ended up knocking her off in uh, in that final. And, you know, that was part of, out of Ashley Barty's miraculous run over these past three seasons. But it is a quicker court. Sorry, I got a tangent there. I started thinking about how exceptional Barty was, and I started getting nostalgic for the Barty days. We're already at that point. It's been about a month. We're feeling nostalgia for Ashley Barty. Miss not having her at an indoor clay court event because it's just such a fascinating surface to see her aggression as well as her proficiency, creativity, and movement on the clay manifest itself. Uh, but look, Maria Sakari on a quicker clay court with her physicality, how well she moves on the surface. You give her a little bit extra juice on that serve. 
you know, she is extraordinarily dangerous. And so I hope things stick to stick to serve. I hope we do get a Sviantek-Sakari match because I think that could be a preview of a later stage at the French Open. But this section of the draw against Sviantek, you know, one of the dangerous players you may have circled by name, Camilla Georgie, already knocked out of the section by lucky loser, Tamira Korpots. Uh, you look at her seed in her immediate section, Emma Raducanu, who struggled a bit in her second match on the clay, knocked out by Vondrusova. But, you know, Marquette Vondrusova is, in my opinion, on the short list of favorites straight up, even though she lost to Onjabur in the round of 32. Uh, Jabour ultimately with the victory 4-6-6-2-6-3 over Von Thrusova. I mean, I think both of them are on the short list of favorites and contenders to win the French Open. And so, you know, again, I don't think that was a particularly poor loss for Raducanu, but it's going to be fascinating to see her compete on the clay court. She has a tricky first matchup against lefty Storm Sanders. And, you know, again, in that soccer section, not only will she face likely tomorrow's Danzig in round number one or wildcard Laura Sinkaman faster indoor surface still I'd likely go with well faster indoor surface perhaps not but also in the section always dangerous big hitting Ludmilla Samsonova and then the big hitters in the first match of Petra Kvitova taking on Karolina Pliskova I would say that section is probably my favorite of the draw just the Kvitova Pliskova first round matchup how dangerous is Zidanezic heading into this clay court stretch Samsonova indoors always dangerous with how big she hits the ball how well she strikes and then Sakari now is she ready to be on the short list of contenders always given the openings we know Iga what's the list after Iga Sakari's got as strong of a resume as any to be listed in that number two spot top half of the draw fascinating then you get to the bottom section Kerber indoor clay court is interesting for her but she's taken on Annette Conteve you know Conteve it was a it was a disappointing sunshine swing how does she bounce back on a surface that should fit her well she's been so good on indoor hard courts does that translate to indoor clay let's find out but of course in the Conteve quarter of the draw the most fascinating uh, thing has to be uh, the presence of Bianca Andrescu and Andrescu today a straight set win over Julie Neiman Meyer to advance and you know with that Andrescu victory now it's going to be a fascinating matchup for her as she's going to take on Arena Sabalenka the number three seed finalist here last year on a surface that really should fit her game best if she can find some rhythm on the toss on the serve but indoor conditions if you're ever going to start serving well it's got to be indoors Andrescu Sabalenka round of 16 what a we're spoiled folks and then again Katarina Alexandrova who I believe had a big result here last year I want to say quarterfinals of this tournament uh, already knocks out Shui Zhang she'll face the winner of Kanteve Kerber your final quarter of the draw we already had the fascinating matchup actually this section's pretty juicy as well. It's the Sakari quarter and the Bedosa quarter, and Jabour knocking off Von Trusova in a three-set uh, you know, uh, round of 32 matchup. That could very well be French Open round of 16, depending on where everyone falls in the draws. Honest to God, that could be a French Open semifinal. Uh, Coco Goff knocked out by Daria Kasakina. That's going to be disappointing for her, particularly indoors in Goff. Obviously has French Open quarterfinal points to defend, has a title that she won on the clay court season last year to defend coming up as well. Well, it's a big stretch for the young American, but Dasha Kasakina indoors, tricky, was able to move the ball around well, be assertive. She's now going to face Jabour. And then, I mean, again, if Sabalenka Andreescu wasn't juicy enough, how about Bedosa Rabakina in the round of 16? I mean, these are some good matches, folks. So as always, the WTA promises to deliver first serious weekend of clay court action. I mean, we had Charleston. First serious at week of European 
clay court action, and it's happening indoors in Stuttgart. That's where the fun begins, folks. Uh, it is a loaded draw there. It's also a loaded draw in Istanbul, which, of course, is where your second WTA event of the week is happening. And given how loaded those you know 500,000-level events are in the women's game, just inevitably, there are going to be players who either A, choose, you know, who don't get in because the ranking cutoff is so high and there's a conglomerate of them competing in Istanbul this week. Now, it's interesting that Elisa Mertens, who is obviously a top 30 player, she opted out of uh, Stuttgart, opts to play Istanbul instead. She's your number one seed. Number two seed, Serena Kirstea, who continues to float around the WTA top 20, has been so dangerous just about everywhere, playing extraordinarily well. She's your number two seed. Your three seed, Veronica Kudermatova, who, of course, had a fantastic sunshine swing. And right now, Kudermatova in the WTA race, quietly 11th. She's your number three seed right now. Uh, It's going to be fascinating to see how she comports herself on the on the uh, red clay in Turkey, of course. Your number four seed, Angelina Kalanina, who's won just about as many matches as anyone over the last 52 weeks. And you look for Kalanina right now in the live rankings. The 25-year-old currently won off her career high, but sitting at number 37. Interesting that she didn't make the choice to go play Stuttgart, which she would have gotten into for the first time of her career. She opts instead to try and go rack up some more points, get some clay court WTA-level matches under her belt in Istanbul, and it's going to be a brutal first-round matchup for her as she has the always dangerous and creative Petra Martic. Martic, who, of course, has her best results in her career on clay courts. That is a tough first-round matchup for the number four seed. You know, some of the other floaters to watch, Sribes Tormo, the number seven seed, takes on the big-hitting uh, Chiang Wang, who the young Chinese woman has been one of the rising stars of the 2022 season. going to be interesting to see how she competes on the Turkish clay. Of course, Jill Teichman, is she healthy? Is she playing well? We never know. She's your number five seed here this week. Maria Buskova would play, if she wins her first round match against Favara Gracheva, which is no layup, she would have a, a play, face the winner of Wang Cerebez Tormo. If Buskova plays Cerebez Tormo, three sets, four hours, just expect a track meet post. Of course, Al Tom in this event as well. Alia Tomjanovic, your number six seed. She's in the top quarter with Elisa Mertens. By the way, Elisa Mertens first round, Rebecca Pedersen, potential second round, either Magda Lynette, who's always tricky, or Yulia Putinseva, who's just a nightmare with the slice, the drop shots, the angle. She's employing the physicality on this surface. So as always, we're likely to get a three and a half hour match out of Elisa Mertens this week. But right now, according to Tennis Abstract, your favorite to capture the title in Istanbul. Veronica Kudermatova at 26.3% after her. It's Mertens 12.9, Teichman 9.7, Kirstea 8.6. But interesting to note that your prohibitive favorite right now is Kudermatova. Obviously, that has a lot to do with her results beyond just on clay courts, perhaps even more so uh, than her level on the clay. By the way, over in Stuttgart, your favorite right now to win the title, Iga Svantec, 52.8%. That's how excellent she's been. Obviously, world number one, number one in the points race, number one in the ELO ratings, number one in the year low, yearly ELO ratings. When you're that sort of prohibitive favorite, no matter how loaded the seat is. But, you know, by the way, she does have probably the easiest quarter of the bunch with Radakanu as her seat and some upsets 
you know, already unfolding 52.8% chance. That's just likely given how likely she is at this point to make the semifinals. After that, you have Bedosa at 10.1. Talk about a precipitous decline. Then Sakari 7.2, Sabalenka 5.6, Jabor 5.3, Kontave 4.6, then Kvitova 4.4. Interesting stuff on the WTA side. Again, two uh, events happening this week, one of them in Stuttgart, the other in Istanbul. Let's finally get to the ATP action happening this week, and we'll start with the 500-level event happening in Barcelona. Again, Stefano Tsitsipas going right from Monte Carlo over to Spain. He's your number one seed, 25.4% chance to win, but he's going to have to, like, you know, again, it's a loaded section of his draw. You've got Grigor Dimitrov coming off of the Monte Carlo semifinal. You've got Carlos Alcaraz, more importantly, your number five seed, who is going to be hungry and eager to leave his early Monte Carlo exit behind him. Obviously, that was a tough draw for him last week in Sebastian Corey. He's got the always tricky Sudan Wukwan in round number one, but then a potential matchup with either Nicolas Basilashvili or Haumi Munar in round two. I mean, Munar has had so much success on the clay courts, whether it be at the challenger level We've seen him obviously get frisky throughout the course of his career at the ATP level as well. He had a sneaky good start to his 2021 season. Now has fallen off a bit of late, but man, Munar Alcaraz, talk about a track meet. That would be some really good clay court tennis. And boy, if we got, you know, I think we all were burned after last week's projecting Djokovic to face Alcaraz in the quarterfinals. Neither guy wins a match in Monte, Car- in Monte Carlo, but boy, would a little Tsitsipas Alcaraz preview in Barcelona be just what all of us tennis fans deserve. Of course, you look beyond that quarter, and we did have a withdrawal from the event with uh, a couple of different seeds, uh, or excuse me, with our number five seed, I believe, bowing out of the event. So Cam Nori into the draw, your uh, highest seed in his section. He's got Federico Del Bonis in this section of the draw. He's got a tricky first-round match against Marton Fucevic. Demonauer, Ugo Umber, two fish out of water on the clay courts. Nevertheless, a fun match. A match Demonauer should win, as he would be halfway to matching his clay court win total of 2022 with a second win over Umber and would then, you know, face the winner of Lloyd Harris, the always dangerous big server who's taken on one of the most dangerous players on clay courts in the lefty Spaniard, Albert Ramos Vanoles. Uh, again, if Demon gets to the quarterfinals in Barcelona, that's a massive success. And Demon does not have much to defend from the clay courts from last season. So that would be a big result for the Australian. The section would open up for him again. Nori, you know, who's the scary person in this section? Is it Ramos, the 17 seed? Is it Del Bonus, the 15? Is it Nori, who's been sneaky good on clay despite a first-round loss last week? He's looking for the bounce back. Is it Demon Nauer, who I actually thought looked pretty solid last week in his three-set loss to Andre Rublev? This is the most interesting section of the draw, and just in terms of who knows what's going to happen here. I could list out seven different scenarios. I would like to see a Nori bounce back but I think there's a bunch of different ways this one could go. So be on the lookout for wildness in quarter number two in Barcelona. Quarter number three, Schwartzman rematch with Lorenzo Musetti. That was such a fun three-setter last week. We're going to get to see it again this week. And for Musetti, another good win, this time over Dan Evans. You've also got Francis Tiafo who's going to take on Hugo Delian. And then uh, Carlos Taberner, who earned a really impressive victory over Sebastian Corda. He's now going to take on Felix Ogier. Aliasim Taberner's had so much challenger clay court success over the last 52 weeks. You look for the Spaniard uh, now uh, Taberner. Just in the last 52 weeks alone has made, I believe, four different challenger finals all on clay he's won the title in 
each of those instances. Up to new career high ranking of number 93 at the end of last season, currently sitting at number 94, is the soon-to-be 25-year-old. Again, a dangerous opponent for a Felix Ogiali team. Desperately looking to build some momentum here on the clay courts. That's a tougher than the experts predict uh, sort of matchup. Wouldn't shock me if Turner's the favorite, honestly. I mean, again, if the late money all goes on Turner and by the end, you know, come match time, that's even odds. Uh, via the odds makers right now, Felix, the slight favorite, minus 150, but that it's only minus 150 is a testament to the action and the respect for those those have for clay, uh, Carlos Turner on the clay courts. You know, I think the winner of Schwartz and Musetti. Oh, honestly, Tiafo. I want to see a big bounce back from Tiafo, but this is a fun section of the draw. Bunch of good players in there, and I feel like that's what I always say. Should I just title this podcast? This is a fun section of the draw. Um, but then your final section, fun Spaniard uh, matchup in the first round, Carino Busta, Zapata Morales. Zapata Morales, much like Taberner and other guys, had a ton of challenger-level success of late. The winner of that will take on Lorenzo Sinego. Casper Ruud advancing with an impressive straight-set victory over Brandon Nakashima. He'll face the winner of the always dangerous big-serving Sasha Bublik, and again, the sleeping giant, in my opinion, in Emil Rusevori. Rusevori over a, a straight-set win, a win-one over Feliciano Lopez. Now faces uh, now faces Sasha Bublik, and is probably just asking himself, what do I have to do to get a good draw? Bublik is probably the best draw he could have hoped for in the round of 32, but then would face Casper Ruud right away in the round of 16. He's like, can't you put me in the Nori section, please? Can't you just give me some sort of momentum to work with? Nevertheless, very fun event in Barcelona, and of course, according to the tennis abstract singles forecast, not a shock to learn that Stefano Tsitsipas, 25.4%, is your favorite right now to win the title. After that, Kasper Ruud, just by virtue of being on the other side of the draw from Tsitsipas, from Alcaraz, he's 22.8%, Alcaraz, 189 I bet if Alcaraz beats Tsitsipas or Tsitsipas gets knocked out, that Alcaraz ends up as a higher percentage chance of winning than Kasper Ruud. But, you know, beyond those three, Diego Schwartzman, 10.2%, Cam Nori, 79 Then there's a significant drop-off to the next player, uh, Corino Busta, 5.1%. Still, I, last week, the favorites looked like favorites. If they're going to this week, it'll be a bounce back for Carlos Alcaraz and Casper Ruud. Both the Miami Open finalists have now had more time to process and adjust to the European environment, to the clay courts. Wouldn't shock me at all to see a potential Miami Open rematch in a uh, final rematch in the Barcelona final this week. But that's your action happening there. And then there's the action happening over in Belgrade as well. Well, of course, Novak Djokovic, if he's got a tournament on home uh, soil, you know he's going to be there. He's your number one seed. Honestly, you could argue Miamir Kasmanovic is the favorite, your number seven seed who earns an impressive win over Richard Garcia and has obviously been one of the rising stars uh, of the first half of the season. Kasmanovic also in this top half of the draw, your seeds there, Djokovic, Kasmanovic, uh, a potential quarterfinal matchup. So we'd finally get the Australian Open first round we were slated for. Then you've got Karen Hatchinoff taking on fellow countryman Roman Sefillian. Good to see Sefillian qualify for an ATP level event. He had so much momentum coming out out of January. Would love to see the young Russian, still young, make a top 25 push. Then the always dangerous lefty Philip uh, Tiago Monteiro, uh, the Brazilian taking on Philip Krajinovic, two guys who are on their best on the slower surface. That's going to be a fun matchup for Djokovic. No slouch in the first round as he's going to take on Laszlo Jur. Laszlo, always a tough out physically on the clay courts. Bottom half of the draw is fun. 
Aslan Karatsev, who last year beat Djokovic in a thrilling three-set semifinal. He's your number four seed. He's got Oscar Ota round round. Fabio Fonini, your six seed, taking on Alias Bedene. You've then got Holger Rune, who earned an impressive first-round victory. Holger, 6-3, 6-1 over number five seed. Christian Green. he's now got Taro Daniel. You've again got the always dangerous young Czech qualifier, Yuri Lechechka, taking on number two seed, Andre Rublev. Djokovic, according to the numbers, your prohibitive favorite, 51.7% chance of winning, according to the tennis abstract singles forecast, but of course that would assume that Djokovic has been playing full-time, which for obvious reasons he has not. It's a fun draw. Can Rune get a, you know, get a big win, back up the big win over Daniel by beating Taro Daniel, or over Christian Garin, excuse me, by beating Taro Daniel, then beating a potential Andre Rublev? Could we see a potential Holger Rune, Nova, Novak Djokovic final? Can Kasmenovic back up his success of late? Obviously, we saw Dominic Team make his return to court in Belgrade, and Team ultimately knocked off in a three-set loss to John Millman. Uh, you look for Team just physically, didn't have the legs in the third set, and ultimately for Millman, 6-3, 3-6, 6-4. I mean, team was just playing so much defense in that third set. Felt like he was six feet behind the baseline, just wasn't able to take that ball early on the rise. And then when he was able to, it felt like he was forcing it. He just didn't quite have his legs under him towards the end of that third set. And of course, John Millman always going to have his legs under him, always going to force you to hit the extra ball. Still, I thought this was a good performance for team in match number one back, and he's mentioned he's going to try and play every week between now and the French Open to get his fitness back where he wants it to be. Fun week of action in Belgrade. And again, four tour-level events for the women. Stuttgart, Istanbul for the men. Barcelona, Belgrade. It's going to be fun, folks. And of course, we'll monitor it all here on the Mini Break Podcast throughout the week. I'm going to get some guests on the line so you don't have to hear me rant in a monologue for an hour, 10 minutes straight. And we'll talk about the latest and greatest happenings, talk about what we can expect moving forward throughout the clay court season. Of course, if you're looking for some non-tour level action coverage of the tennis world, head on over to our Great Shot podcast feed, Damian Kust, Jakob Bobro. Cover all the action happening at the Challenger Tour at the start of each week of of course, Chris Hallioris, Matt Stokowiak, John Parsons, and I covering all of your college action. Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're live on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. We'll also break down the action happening in the SEC and our Big Ten on our Great Shot podcast feed as well. Be on the lookout for more Cracked interviews as well as we try to keep all of you Cracked Rackets listeners the best, most well-informed, best educated fans in the business. Again, for more information, be sure to head over to our website, CrackedRackets.com, for the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack rackets you want to message me directly i am at al gruskin a shout out as always to our super producer daniel westoff for the of an editing job he does day in day out making all of this content possible again a huge thank you to our friends at tennis point as well we will be live at tennis point hq in cincinnati later this week be on the lookout for that content to drop and of course go to tennis-point.com today use our promo code cr15 with all of that said for our super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we will talk to you all later this week and tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 